I don't buy the logic that jobs are going away. Oxford University, I think researchers said 47% of the jobs will disappear. What they don't say is 58% of new jobs will get created or will get, you know, these jobs will get modified. Even if you go back to uh, industrial revolution 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, it's always been like that. That was Himanshu Tambe, adjunct faculty at Singapore Management University and visiting faculty Indian School of Business. Himanshu currently works as CEO at Insource, an augmented intelligence platform designed to optimize operations. He is also the CEO of Cosmode Consultants that offers self-serve consulting using digital first products. Leadercast is a podcast series by ISB Executive Education. This podcast features prominent business executives who are redefining functions and industries and what it means to lead in an era of accelerated change. Through this podcast, you would gain deeper insights into leadership, business, technology, and more in order to stay ahead of competition. Hi, Himanshu. It's a pleasure to be in conversation with you today. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for partnering with ISB. We wanted to take this opportunity to understand from you. These days we keep hearing automation, artificial intelligence, and there's a lot of insecurity with associated in terms of employability in future. Uh, so what do you think would be the impact of artificial intelligence and automation on jobs? What jobs do you think would be particularly impacted? Which industries, which geographies? So, first of all, Gariba, thank you very much for this opportunity. I uh, hold ISB in very high regard and I deem this a privilege to be here in conversation with you. Your question is uh, a very valid one. And I fear that over the last many years, there has been so much said on this about this and there's been so much of fear-mongering that people have uh, developed a very negative and a pessimistic view about the impact of uh, intelligent automation and automation in general on jobs. I'll give you my perspective, right? I've been involved in some research with some professors at Cardiff University and uh, the Singapore University of Technology Design in Singapore. And our view is that jobs are getting impacted. Work is getting impacted by these technologies, but not job by job. They're getting impacted task by task. So let me explain to you a little bit what that means. So, and I'll illustrate it with examples. Maybe that's the best thing, right? So take the job of a contact center agent or a customer service agent. There was a time earlier when he or she would pick up the call, ask you your name, ask you your issue, your problem, and then direct you to the right person. Today, with enough AI, the person knows who you are when he or she picks up the phone. In fact, with emotional AI, they even know from the tone of your voice whether you are an irate customer or a happy customer or just an inquisitive customer. So you think about this. A large part of the tasks that the customer contact service agent was performing are gone. But there are a new set of tasks that have come in. That same agent today has to have very high levels of empathy, has to have high levels of product knowledge, and needs to be able to answer your questions at a very different level because your expectations as a customer has also gone up. 
I mean, I can give you a broad spectrum of examples, whether it is management, whether it is miners, you know, manufacturing. I did some work with BHP Billiton many years ago, and they were implementing these autonomous mines, uh, which basically means driverless vehicles. So miners who used to be at the coal face are now actually sitting in control rooms. Does it mean that the miner's job has gone away? No. It means that the miner's job has changed because certain tasks have been disrupted, eliminated, and other tasks have been introduced. Certainly has an implication for skills, but I don't buy the logic that jobs are going away. Oxford University, I think researchers said 47% of the jobs will disappear. What they don't say is 58% of new jobs will get created or will get, you know, these jobs will get modified. So I would rather look at it as a glass half full story. And even if you go back to uh, Industrial Revolution 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, it's always been like that. Technology has actually increased the number of jobs. So I, I don't know, it's maybe a provocative point of view, but I thought I'll share with you what our research is telling us. No, that, that's a very positive perspective. And thanks for giving that layer of uh, security because we keep hearing all the time. But that also brings us to a very pertinent point that you made that, for example, the uh, ex you know example that you got of a call center or a service agent. Now, while this is helping in queue management, because we're seeing population burst in all the countries, there are queues everywhere. I understand there are efficiencies being built in, but it also brings us to the point of upskilling and reskilling the workforce. And there are organizations who are taking good strides in this uh, direction. But do you think that these have been effective? And if yes, why? And if not, why, why do you think so? I would say, Gariba, it's a, it's a mixed track record, right? There is, again, from research, there is stats to suggest that while more than 80% of the workers surveyed actually say that we want to be reskilled, that same survey showed that less than 13% of the employers are actually doing anything about it, who have actual programs, systematic programs for upgrading and reskilling. So... I don't think it is because workers and employees in general are not willing. I think corporates haven't got their act together. And it's not for the lack of trying. I think they've tried. I think many corporates have tried and some have been very successful. I mean, AT&T's story in the US, 150,000 switching engineers moved from mechanical switches to software switching. And they trained 150,000 people and moved them over three or four years. Huge training budgets and more. BHP Bulletin has done it. Many organizations have done it. But on and these are outliers, I would say. The, the average organization has not been able to do it. And the reason, I think, is because they have taken a very simplistic view to reskilling, which is jobs are going away, so I'm going to change the job description and I'm, that doesn't work. They actually need to look at a job task at task, task by task and need to f define skilling and reskilling journeys that are at a task level. I mean, i give you an example. I mean, this is uh, an example that came out of our research and I'll, I want to show you an information security analyst job. If you look at it, there are so many tasks that an information security analyst does that are common to, for example, someone who's a systems administrator, or sometimes someone who's a web developer. So what I'm trying to say is there are tasks within a job that are common to tasks in another job. 
If you analyze at a task level, you'll be able to find transition pathways between job and another job. And if you direct your skilling journey that way, that, you know, the new job requires 10 tasks. I know five of them. I train for another five. And I transition this person into another role. Yes, then it can succeed. But if I just say, oh, reskilling journey, we'll train you on critical thinking skills and we'll train you on, you know, five different skills. So what do I do with the skills? Where do I apply them? So it's not thought through. It's not a part of a larger job framework. And I think that's why many corporations are struggling with it. Not for the lack of intent, but I think for the lack of systematic execution, I may say. That's, that's again a very interesting piece of advice uh, coming from an experienced consultant like you. You know, do you think uh, that the policymakers also can play a role in implementing this whole thing in the ecosystem of the of any country or many countries at large? So, Gariba, I, I live in a country where the policymakers have shown that it's possible. So, I can speak from a real case study of Singapore. Singapore's uh, they have they have an organ they've created a government organization called Skills Future Singapore. You probably heard of it. The role of Skills Future Singapore is to create a nationwide skills taxonomy. And that taxonomy actually accounts for how jobs are changing at a task level. And they're associating skills to tasks. So the first thing I would say is for governments anywhere, for policymakers anywhere, is first of all, assess and identify task level information for every job. Second, I would say, Start linking skills to those tasks and then encourage reskilling and upskilling journeys that are associated with jobs transitioning from one place to another, as opposed to just listing a bunch of skills and training on them. And I think that is what, I mean, I don't think Singapore has got it fully either, but I tell you, they have made so much of progress. And today, as a result of the progress they have made, they have at least found out where the gaps are, and they've at least been able to direct their funding. They put in a huge amount of money to reskill people, but that funding has been directed in the right way. And institutions like mine, where I work, Singapore Institute of Management, we are one of the so-called training providers or, or um, ATOs, approved training organization type of organization, that goes in and actually deploys many of these courses. So last year... Um, SIM was responsible for a, a program on advanced manufacturing where we put more than a thousand people through reskilling. And these were people from outside manufacturing, but we trained them in advanced manufacturing skills and they got about 80, 85% of them got deployed. They got new jobs. Uh, absolutely, Maju. And um, I know Singapore makes uh, great these great decisions, very proactive decisions. But I'm again, you know, sorry for being a devil's advocate here. Uh, while proactivity is happening, we there is uh, there is that much that can be done on the human end. We are still not able to catch up with the strides that suppose an industrial revolution four is making. So how do we catch up? Uh, how does the human capital catch up on the skills uh, required for the future work uh, ecosystem? Okay, I'm not sure I have the answer, but let me hazard. A submission, right? And this also comes out of some of the research we're doing. In fact, uh, they published a whole report around mastery 
mastery in the digital skills world or something like that. But the point that that report makes is when automation disrupts a job, it's actually not just disrupting the task, but it's also disrupting the interactions between people. So take an example. It's not like a machine is replacing a human being. It's not even like there is one machine and one human being talking to each other. Actually, it is many machines talking to many humans who in turn are talking to many stakeholders, like customers and suppliers and vendors and all of that. So it's a pretty complex set of interactions that are getting disturbed. Unfortunately, our skilling programs and our training programs for individuals don't recognize the human to machine interactions and then the human to human interactions. They only recognize one dimension, which is how the human being interacts with the machine. So individuals are not able to cope with the new job because they have not been trained to work in a new, completely new ecosystem. And I don't know what an individual can do, honestly, because an individual can only take advantage of what is provided to him by the corporate or by the government. Or, But if he can spread this message to individuals that if your job is getting disrupted with some automation, think about this as a system and not just one interaction. As an experienced professional in a job, you'll be able to figure out how your ecosystem is getting disturbed, how your system is getting disturbed, and adjust to that. I feel that is the way individuals can master new jobs in this shifting environment. But it's easy to explain this like this at a theoretical level. I'm not sure how you will implement it. That's a completely different ballgame. Absolutely. Absolutely, Hamanshu. And I like the way our conversation is shaping up. We spoke about AI and automation at large, and then we spoke about organizations going to policymakers, but definitely some responsibility would lie with individuals. So um, as an individual in a workforce, is there any piece of advice you would like to share? You know, what is it? What should be the line of thinking when we are thinking of upskilling or future of work? So how should an individual really be prepared for that? I think first and foremost, as a, as a employee, rather than waiting for the government to tell me or my employer to tell me, I need to take accountability to figure out how this job can be disrupted. It's up to me as an individual. I mean, I'm going to be teaching after this. And uh, last night, my colleague did a chat GPT on one of the questions we're going to discuss in the class today. If I show you the output of that chat GPT, I think both of us are not needed in the class today. It is partially disrupting a teacher's job, but I need to be aware of that, right? And I need to flex my work so that I do something else which complements what automation is doing. And each one of us needs to take accountability for doing that and then figuring out what help I need from where, from the employer, from the policymakers, etc. Now, it's easy for me to say it because we are in the knowledge worker environment. For someone who is at the coalface, frontline, customer service, healthcare, nursing, it's uh, for them, they are so busy 24 by 7. They don't even have time to think about what automation is coming and what technologies are, how they're going to get disrupted. But they need to. Unfortunately, that's what it takes. Yeah, but, but I read a very interesting article some time back which said that jobs that uh, need 
क्रिएटिविटी ह्यूमन इंटरेक्शन इमोशनल इंटेलिजेंस सोशल स्किल्स माइट बी प्रॉबली वेरी लेट इन द लाइन टू बी डिसरप्टेड एंड वी होप वी डोंट गेट गेट देयर ऑल्सो एटलीस्ट आई होप वी डोंट गेट देयर बट येस because i think uh, for uh, and you 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 must be very aware of this right there is the um, what they call the general ai as opposed to the specific ai right i think that part for ai to understand context and interpret context is going to take a longer time so which is why jobs that are high on emotional skills empathy human to human interaction those are less likely to get disrupted for longer periods of time and i think that is where we complement technology so that's why it's important for me to understand my job at a task level and figure out which task will get disrupted and then which task will not so that i can shift my focus to those that will not yes and as as humans we are so adaptable and human beings have started adapting our systems have started adapting we are seeing another buzzword in the market which is gig economy give gig workforce so what what do you think about that double edged sword right i think um, gig economy certainly gives people a lot more flexibility over their time it gives them greater control over what they want to do when they want to do it how long they want to do it for so all these are the pluses but the negatives are this is really not regarded yet as official employment so at least in singapore and i'm sure it's here too gig workers don't have provident fund they don't have insurance so now if they fall sick is it the government's responsibility is that a burden on the exchequer is it a burden on the other taxpayers so how do you address that and gig working might become the largest part of the workforce and then as it is some countries are growing old so as it is there is the the working population has to support the elderly now you got to support the gig workforce also so how will that whole thing work so probably in some time to come in in at the right time in in um, the right place gig working will get recognized as a form formal form of employment uh, when that happens i think it's it's good it's goodness because again back to my task by task i'm sorry to keep saying the same thing it's only when you get to the task by task level can you say which parts can go to a be done in a on a gig basis and which can't not everything can be done on a gig basis those tasks that involve ip that involve deep content that involve uh, expertise you want to retain it inside you don't want it to be floating outside somewhere absolutely it will give rise to more generalists than specialists or super specialists which is uh, quite uh, you know in the opposite direction of where we were headed pre covid but after covid um, you know we are seeing a lot of rise in hybrid workforce and so <laughs> hybrid right i mean actually we've been talking about it with our students also so there's a professor in stanford called nick bloom who has been tracking remote working and hybrid working for the last 15 years actually well before covid he has been doing it as a part of his research he's been doing surveys periodically through the covid since 2019 and uh, his research is showing that there are three types of workforces there's the front line workforce who faces customers healthcare like i was talking garbage collectors th- th- all that 
they're going to have to go back to work. So there's no question of hybrid for them. They're also the people who are probably not so qualified, not so well paid, probably not covered by insurance, but the ones who are going to face all the health risks. So that's one. The second lot will be the knowledge, knowledge workers who will truly be hybrid. They'll be the only ones who will truly be hybrid. And then there'll be the backroom people like the IT, like accounting, like finance, support. They will be 100% work from home. So this is where it will settle. I, I think the equilibrium will settle. Again, you'll have a problem because none of these hybrid jobs or the pure work from home jobs are truly 100% hybrid or 100% work from home. There are tasks within them that need to be done in the office. So again, if people don't think task by task and say, okay, how should I redesign these hybrid jobs? How should I redesign these work from home jobs? Again, we're going to get into the same amount, same trouble. It will not be a one strategy fit all or a broad paintbrush approach which will work for all. I understand uh, that and... Um, you know, that's it. It brings us uh, to the um, end of our conversation. If there is anything you would like to share, any other interesting facts that you have uh, to share with us, we would be more than happy to hear from you. The one thing I want to say in closing is as we settle into these new ways of working, the role of the leader is going to have to dramatically change. The olden day model of a leader who is... Um, I'll tell you what to do and you do it is going to be very difficult to implement in the future because with all these changes, with so much of uncertainty, no one person has the answer. If the leader still continues to believe that he or she is the know-all and will not accept inputs from anyone else, not only will he or she fail, he'll take the organization down with them. So the role of the leader has to be completely rethought in the context of all these new ways of working. It will not be command and control. It will be coach and collaborate and exactly. communicate. Very well said. From being a monitor, you'll have to become a mentor. Absolutely. Absolutely agree with you, Manchu. Very good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Likewise, Manchu. Bye-bye. Thank you.